Morning, everyone. As Aaron said, I'm Jace. Nice to meet you if I haven't met you. I'm not meeting you right now, but nice to see you out there. Um, uh, welcome. Welcome to church. We are uh, nearing the end of the series we're in, which is um, about the deeply formed life. It's been really good. If you've missed um, any of those episodes, you can... Episodes. Ooh, I'm revealing what generation I'm a part of. If you've missed any of those sermons, you can find those podcast episodes Ugh, online. Sorry about that. Um, I'm going to just pray, and then we'll just jump right in. God, I thank you so much for the sweetness of your presence this morning. Thank you for the lives of those kids, especially. We pray a blessing over them, over their futures that are bright. And thank you, God, we, we, the honor is ours to get to witness their lives. So we thank you for them. And I just ask you to be with my words and with all of our hearts and minds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to talk about work today. So if you have a Bible, open up to the first page, Genesis chapter 1. So I'm going to read the first sentence. I'm just going to read it. First sentence of the Bible, the sacred text of billions of people all around the world, goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, And then if you've read this chapter at all, you know that what follows is something like this. Day one, day two, all the way up to day seven. And each day comes with something that God did to create the world, the heavens and the earth. Um, So this is a pretty straightforward reading. If you just read the text, you get this picture. Um, And unfortunately, this picture has become sort of ammunition for the war between science and faith. Genesis 1 is a, like, bloody battlefield of picking sides of what you're going to choose and, you know, where your allegiances lie. Um, but when we do that, when we use Genesis 1 as ammunition in, to put in our guns for science versus faith or something like that, um, we actually miss what's happening in the text. So you can read it like this, and that's great. That's awesome. But the Bible was also designed by brilliant minds in partnership with the Holy Spirit as an act of worship and art. Um, and so like any good art or any good piece of literature, it's understandable at first on a first reading, but if you actually spend the time to think on it a little bit longer, you see more. There's more there. Um, So it's long been noticed by Jewish scholars, ancient and modern, and then um, others as well, that this seven-day creation narrative, which looks like that, can actually be more intentionally understood, um, which you can see in the next chart. So um, maybe some of you have seen this before, but if you haven't, let me just walk you through what you're looking at. Um, this, there's three acts in this chapter. Act one, God um, orders. And so if you read the text, you'll notice all the languages about how he's separating and ordering, days one through three. But then days four through six, it's not ordering anymore. He's actually populating those respective days. So when he ordered out day and night in the first one in the rhythm of time, The sun and the moon and the stars in day four are the rulers over that section. And then five to two. Um, This is just one layer of what's going on inside this chapter. It'll just blow your mind what's happening here. And then act three. So act one, order. Act two, populate. Act three, God rests. 
Um, so I, I want to just show you this. I want to just show you this as like to just to whet your appetite that there's more in Genesis 1 than just the debates of science versus faith. <laughs> These guys were on, operating on a different playing field. And so a um, few things I want to pull from this. Number one, note that there's just no mention at all in Genesis 1 about atoms or protons or neutrons, the laws of gravity or quantum physics. There's nothing there. That's because the author of Genesis is not interested in answering our scientific questions of material origins of the universe. If you just can see this <laughs> straight up, he's doing something else. So to go a step further, the author of Genesis isn't even aware of our scientific categories of such things when he, when he wrote the book. The author was clearly answering different questions, totally different questions than the ones we tend to ask as modern, as modern individuals. And so this begs the question, well, what's the more important question we should be asking? What should we ask of the text? If Genesis isn't a science textbook, because it's not, you can just read it. It's bad science. It's not good science. It's just not a science textbook. So what is it? Um, the answer is this, that it is a true, it's true, I, we hold to that as followers of Jesus, it's a true, beautifully designed, and theologically rich history of the cosmos to answer questions like, why are we here? Who is God? And who are we in relationship to him? This book concerns the meaning of life, and that's something that a science textbook can't give you. So the Genesis creation account is making all sorts of spectacular theological claims, which we, as, as followers of Jesus, believe to be true. <clears throat> but here are two of the primary things that it's saying that are of interest to me today for the message. Number one, well, let me say it like this. Genesis, Genesis presents a portrait of God. If we can go back to that chart, Genesis presents a portrait of God who, A, brings order out of chaos, in, in time and space. That's what he's doing. And then B, he fills that and populates it with life, with the purpose of seeing life flourish. This is the character and the nature of God you're seeing at work in Genesis 1. And so there's something else to consider at this point. Well, the author could have communicated those ideas to his reader in a number of ways. We could just like, I don't know, have a circle and figure out all sorts of ways to come up with how to talk about that. Um, so why this way? What's happening here? Um, and that's because Genesis 1 is written, and this might be a surprise to some of you. Hopefully it's not too big of a surprise. But Genesis 1 was written within the categories of the ancient mind. In other words, the author that wrote this lived over 3,000 years ago, just so we're clear. And he did not speak English. And so... We actually find that his language and his rhetoric style, his mental categories, all of it, is like the ancient world in which he lived. Just like the way you or I and the way we think, the metaphors we use, the way that I said episode five minutes ago, totally betrays the fact that I'm an American living in the 21st century. So the case with this author. So when the ancient mind imagined a deity, and I'm not saying it's false because he imagined it. I'm saying when the Holy Spirit impressed upon him to imagine this, imagined a deity taking up residence in the world of mortals. Like this is how his ancient mind is processing it. They would think in terms of temples, places where the divine and the human meet. These are categories common in the ancient world. 
And so the construction of these temples where the divine and human meet, this is of key importance to this author. So Genesis 1, as it turns out, and I can, if you're, if you're interested in this, the reading is really fascinating and really fun. Um, Genesis 1 actually reads like ancient temple bl- blueprints. <laughs> if you just read other temple accounts around the ancient world. The tabernacle later on and the temple narratives in Kings and then the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, if you read those and you read, you have Genesis open, you can tell that Genesis 1 is like a temple blueprint because of the way that those construction designs are laid out. It matches the creation account. In other words, if you're an ancient Jew learning about God's creation of the cosmos, according to Genesis 1, you would hear this story read to you and picture all of creation as God's glorious temple. That's what, you would, that's what would get into your bones. This is God's glorious temple. And this God is the one who actually desires to enter into his temple and rest alongside of, and work alongside of his creation. It's the theological punch you're getting when you read this chapter. But if you read it just in terms of the debates, the modern debates, you miss, you miss all of that. Um, so this brings us to Genesis 1.26. Um, if you have your Bible, look down. I forgot to put it in the slides. I'm sorry. But um, God makes humankind in his image. You know that, for, that 126? Okay, the word image is the Hebrew word selim. And it's a common word for the word idol, like an idol statue. Um, next, next picture, like one of these. Like the thing that Israel was never supposed to make. It's like number one sin. Just don't, don't, don't make those. God makes one <laughs> in Genesis 1. I don't know if you know that. Um, so that's interesting. God has found making one, so we have to say, you have to ask, well, what's going on? Humans are going to get in trouble for making these later on, so why does God get to do it? Um, and at all, that, all doesn't, that makes no sense unless you understand Genesis 1 as temple, temple cosmology. If God is making all of creation a temple, what is he setting up there in the temple? A little idol called human beings. And so you have to ask, okay, what, what does an idol do? What's the role of an idol? In the imagination of the ancient mind, an idol statue sits in a temple and somehow bears the authority, the divine presence of that deity it represents. Whether or not you believe in the deity behind it or whatever, that's not, the, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying if you see an idol in a temple, someone thinks that behind that little thing is a divine figure. So that's how they conceive of the world. In Genesis 1, God sets one up, and it's this like living, breathing thing. Um, so the profound picture of Genesis 1 then is that all of creation is made to be a temple for this creator God whose very presence manifests in the explosion and abundance of life. That's who this God is. But within this cosmic temple, there are unique creatures made to significantly resemble this creating, ordering, ruling God. They're called humans. They are the only thing allowed to be considered idols of Yahweh God. And he said so. After that, everything humans start to make as idols, bad news. <clears throat> humans are prohibited from making those idols, but as images or idols of God themselves, all of creation actually looks to them in the narrative of the Genesis to represent Yahweh. They're all looking to, at humans to do a good job. So we're now, now, okay, that was like a exhausting, 
Seven minute context for the sermon. Here we go. So we're into the world of these authors. And so it benefits us to ask the sorts of questions like, okay, well, what in the narrative of Genesis, what are humans supposed to do to image out God in his abundant temple universe? And then you get Genesis 127. Ready? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and check this out, subdue it and have dominion. Um, (laughs) Which is an intense word. But in the context of Genesis 1, this is just a description of what God just did. He ordered out a world, he started populating it, and then he set it up for flourishing of life. What it means to rule is to just do what, God, do what God's been doing. So in this world where death and destruction run rampant through, through chaos, you can read the first sentences of Genesis 1, the image bearer is actually commissioned to bring order, which allows in some capacity for the flourishing of life after he does that work. So order for flourishing is found all over this world. From, and you see this. It's in our DNA. From the steady hands of a surgeon to the careful work of like a plumber, or all the way to the, a diligent kindergarten teacher. Like you're never gonna escape, humans cannot escape this instinct we have to bring order where there's chaos. It's just, in, it's just written into our code. And Genesis 2 really wants to tease this out. It's beautiful. You read Genesis, look, look at Genesis 2.15 with me. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, um, Okay, so I want to note two things about this passage. The first one I'm going to do briefly because I can't help myself and I feel like you just need to if you're going to do a good teaching on it. But then we're going to fly by, okay? And then you can talk to me afterwards if you want to talk more. First, notice right here, Adam is made, if you read closely, Genesis 2, Adam's made outside of the garden. There's like three points where it specifically locates Adam outside. He's made and God puts him inside of the garden. So the author actually starts to sketch out a a theological geography. There's nerdier academic terms for that, but theological geography is what I'll call that. So um, look look at 2.8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So notice the the garden is a place inside of a larger region called Eden. It's not like Eden equals garden. It's, there's, a, there's Eden, then there's a garden inside, and the man goes in there, and in the center of that, as you're going to find, is a tree. So you get this, like, tiered, it's called a cosmology. This is their, how they conceived of the Garden of Eden. So here's, the, here's what I want to say. Notice that the man is formed outside the garden, and because, because there's this map, you get this map of him being put in, it starts to make sense that when he commissions humanity to go and bring his order into the world, you already understand, oh, I, I see. God's work is to establish his rule. I, I think I have this on a slide just so you can see it. God's work is to establish his rule over all of creation because creation itself is not complete at the end of Genesis 1 and 2. Sometimes we read Genesis 1 and 2 and we're like, the whole world was perfect or something. But that's just a shallow reading. Read closely. The whole point is, no, God created a garden, and then he said, I want to work with humans to, to f- go out. Let's, flour- let's make this, let's bring it to perfection together. Not you just sit around and do nothing. <laughs> he told them, go work. So, okay, all right, I'm spoiling it here. Let's go into the next point. 
2.15, go back and read 2.15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and to keep it. Um, so we have a job. There's a job now, a job description. And this is, um, we've made this point before in church. I'm just going to point out again. Notice that the idea of working actually shows up before the fall. So this is contrary to a lot of American belief. We, we're like, you know, it's like all about retirement for us. And so when we read Genesis 1, it's like, there's no working in God's ideal world, there's no working. But no, no, no. Notice working shows up way before the fall. They were working. Don't freak out if that's like in heaven we have to work or something. Just wait. I promise. It's a way better image. But I, um, so the question is, how does one define work? And what does sin do to work? Not is work bad? Because it's not bad. It's good. So let's talk about these two words in this verse. Um, the Hebrew word for work is the word avad. Um, and then the Hebrew word for, for keep or guard is the word shamar. So, the, man, these two words. Um, I went down the rabbit hole this week, and they're so crucial. They are so crucial, more than I realized. And so uh, avad or work is particularly interesting because it it can really be nuanced depending on its direct object, which is a really nerdy way to say, depending on the sentence it shows up in, it can kind of be translated differently. So if you are avoiding the ground, sometimes you'll, the translation won't be work, it'll be like till or, or garden. That makes sense. But it, the same word shows up in all sorts of different um, occupations. It's the same idea. So check out this example in Exodus, 10 Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall avad and do all your work, but on the seventh day, Sabbath, Lord your God, you know the deal. Um, so most people worked the land because it was an agrarian society, but women were working in the home and there were tradesmen and there were craftsmen. It was, all of it is avadding. So what's really interesting, here we go. For those of you that are just bored to tears right now, don't fall asleep. I promise you there's going to be payoff. What's really interesting is that this word is picked up in passages about religious and sacred duties. So it's going to be temple and tabernacle language used later on. Check out this example in Numbers 4, 23. From 30 years old up to 50 years. So this is, we're talking about the priesthood, the, Le the Levitical priests. You're going to list those priests, all who can come and avad in the tent of meeting. Now, that's not just any kind of work, right? We know that it's sacred. You can read the book of Leviticus. It's sacred work, but it's still the same word. Shamar, to go back to Shamar, is going to show up later in Scripture right alongside Avad in sacred settings in particular. So this one's fun. This is where, like, you can see the payoff here. Look at Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. I'm just going to read it, but I'm going to insert the Hebrew word instead of what you have in your English translations. But if you flip there in your English, you'll see how they translate it differently. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near. So these are the priests. And set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. Now, they need, they're going to, they shall shamar over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they avad at the tabernacle. They shall shamar over all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and shamar over the people of Israel as they avad at the tabernacle. So here's the point I'm trying to make for those of you that are lost. It is more than interesting that the author of Numbers chose to utilize these verbs, avad and shamar, right next to each other when he's talking about the priesthood. 
That tells us something about the author's mental categories. When he wants to talk about temple work, tabernacle work, he references Genesis 2.15, when all they're doing is gardening, supposedly. And so it invites us to ask a really critical question. What does the author of Genesis 2.15 want us to picture when we read Avad and Shamar? You can go back to 2.15. Where are we? When he's about to work and keep it, where are we? Are we in a garden? Do we have good reason to just think that this is agricultural work? Straight up. Straight up. But is it just agricultural work? Do we have good reason to understand that God and humanity are also in like a temple of some kind? Yeah. So in other words, let me just let's stop being cryptic here. In other words, when they're told to work and keep... Are we to imagine them as working the field or are we to imagine them as performing sacred tasks in the presence of the Holy Lord of Lords? Yes. And the ba- here's the basic point I'm trying to make. <laughs> before there ever was a temple, before there ever was a tabernacle within the Old Testament itself, before, th- before the work of avoding and shamaring was picked up to refer to Levitical priesthood, Genesis 1 and 2 actually paints a picture of God's good creation where all of humanity is commissioned as these royal, right? They're ruling and subduing these royal image-bearing priests to advance God's good rule into the world and to somehow in their gardening and in their community building and in their childbearing and their culture making and the work of their hands reflect back to God all of his due worship, the work of priests, and then rule like God, yeah, like kings and queens, go send or order out of chaos. <laughs> here, here it is. Work and worship are not separate in the biblical imagination. Yeah? Okay. Great. So our, generally, our, our definition of worship is very narrow. Like we have 20 minutes of worship before the sermon comes. So, okay, but you all know the story. So now I'm just going to fly. Ready? Here we go. Let's just fly. You all know the story. Genesis 3, humans believe the lie that God is like keeping something from them, namely wisdom to discern good and evil. So instead of partnering with him, they partner with the serpent. You've all read the tale. So the scene that follows is actually really intuitive. That which was ripe with potential has now been horribly and tragically frustrated The ground is cursed, as it were, and work is not what it used to be. So the story just flies forward at breakneck speed, and it's not just, here's the thing, it's not just that work isn't what it used to be. It's that apart from God's presence, work actually begins to mutate and take on a monstrous, demonic, enslaving form of its own. So, So Exodus 1, open up Genesis 1, and then open up Exodus 1 and read them back and forth. Exodus 1 is written intentionally in stark contrast to Genesis 1. It opens up with a human ruler, a a, a human who's ruling, but his idea of wisdom, his idea of good, the word, you can find the words in that chapter, his idea of order has been so horrifically warped and mutilated, it's almost unrecognizably human. In fact, you're supposed to kind of read it and be like, ooh, this is not human anymore. There's something else at work. And that's the whole point. This human has become so obsessed with his own wealth and his own power 
that he actually managed to convince himself in partnership with the serpent that to preserve his own at the best interest of his own nation, he must destroy the masses of the other. And that, he says, is shrewd and good. And you're supposed to... Well, okay, so when we read Exodus, we're supposed to just have our, mouth, our hands over our mouths in abhorrence. It's this grotesque, graphic picture of what happens when work has fully grown or fully matured into something dehumanizing and evil. For Pharaoh, people are no longer image bearers. They're just disposable tools to get the job done. The Hebrew people are forced into brutal labor and then subjected to infanticide at the hands of an inimical ruler who has forgotten what it actually means to rule. Pharaoh turns them into slaves. And you know what the word for slave is? Avad. Which signals something to you, the reader. What was once a beautiful thing, humanity has now become enslaved to. And then in turn, they start to enslave others. This is how work works now. What was once established for the flourishing of the cosmos has now been so twisted, you guys. It's been so twisted with a white-knuckled lust for control, for power, that others are forced into the brutal avad, the advancement of the few at the expense of the masses because the masses are just tools. They're means to an end. But if you've been reading Genesis closely, you know, you know right now that God is always at work himself to bring about life and blessing and order where there's chaos. So we zoom in on Yahweh's conversation with Moses in the burning bush, Genesis or Exodus 3.12. Look what he says. He says to Moses, hey, Moses, I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall avad. God on the mountain. That's what he says. So the dehumanization happening in Egypt is just unacceptable to Yahweh. He's done. He's over it. And so he gets to work. God gets to work himself to do what he does, bring order out of chaos. But here's the kicker. He doesn't do it alone. He has an employee, a coworker, really, Moses. He brings salvation through the image-bearing human, I'm sending you, Moses. Go bring order out of chaos. <laughs> and man, we could, we don't have time, but we could go into the, the nerdy, nerdy depths of how this all plays out to look just like Genesis 1 and 2. It's amazing. Now why, get, now, why didn't God just do it himself? You ever have that question? That's a big question for people with a lot of doubt. Why doesn't God just do this or this or this? Um, I'm becoming more and more convinced that this is an answer, at least for my own wrestling with that question. Because God is on a mission to establish humanity as his royal priest partners. And he's just not interested. He wants to share it. He's bent on sharing it with humans. He just wants to. And he's going to stop at nothing to get the job done. And so Moses is this very intentionally, he's like this very potential intentionally portrayed character that's like this garden worker that's actually partnering with Yahweh in the narrative. And we're like, go Moses! But most of us know the story. The people are liberated, and then when they come to God on that mountain, free from avodding for Pharaoh, ready to learn what avodding means again, 
but now in the context of Yahweh, the real king, that's when Yahweh says to them, Israel, you shall be, you've heard this before probably, a kingdom of priests is what he calls them. A holy nation. Kingdom of priests? What does that sound like? Oh, that's right. I totally remember a beginning story where humanity was described with royal, go and have dominion and rule, and then priestly language of Adon Shamar to take that task of God out into the world and then reflect the praises back to Yahweh. So now, look at what's happening in the story. Israel is now the instrument of God's commitment to see this partnership progress. But we all know what happens. Israel is a community of broken people. And their immediate failure with the golden calf, just after meeting God on the mountain to get to work, leads to a destroyed dream of the whole nation being priests. You can read about this in Exodus 19, 20, and 21 with good commentaries. You can read about this. Don't just read fast. Read slow. Read it 50 times. That instead, the, sto- the whole point is that the whole nation can't be priests. Instead, this, the story settles for a plan B where the Levites alone are made priests. The Levitical priesthood itself was never the ideal. In fact, the nation of Israel alone being the chosen people was never the goal. Abraham's seed as the exclusive represent- representative of God's blessing, never the goal. Read closely. That's never been the goal. The whole point is that God's ideal in Eden was squandered. That's the point. It was spurned. But it's because of his covenant faithfulness to partner with humans and his commitment to that marriage that he is going to continue to make these concessions that, um, and continue to work with them until eventually he brings about his purposes for all of creation, just like the original goal was made to be. So Adam and Eve failed, and then Moses failed later on, and then Israel failed, and then the Levitical priesthood was an absolute nightmare. In the book of Leviticus, it's a nightmare. And so what we really need, and the the authors are aware of it. They're trying to point it out to you cleverly and subtly. What we really need is a true, man, what we really need is a true and good priest king who actually does this work and then somehow makes a way to invite us all in to do it with him. Oh, come on. I got, I got like one clap there. Way to go. Okay. So, man, welcome to the wonderful world of the Gospels. And they are, you guys, it is outrageous. They're so tuned in to all of this. Just think on just, I'm, I, we're just going to do the Gospel of Mark. We don't even have time to talk about any other Gospel. Just the Gospel of Mark. In the first chapter, Jesus shows up in the synagogue. Chapter one, shows up in the synagogue, and there's a demon-possessed man hanging out. Do you remember what the demon-possessed man calls him? He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, the Holy One. So Mark, the Holy, that's priest language. Mark is recalling language of the priesthood here. The ones who avoided and shamard in God's presence, they were called the Holy Ones. Saints is what it's translated as sometimes in your New Testament. So the, um, they're the only, they're the unique ones that are the only ones that have the right to navigate that liminal space between heaven and earth. And we call that liminal space a temple. But here, look at this. Jesus is called the Holy One, but notice he's not in the temple. He's out with the people. It's like Jesus is a priest on his lunch break, and on his lunch break he starts doing priest stuff, but he's not on company ground. And so it's actually in the same chapter, Mark 1, that you get Jesus' encounter with the man with leprosy. 
Read it again through the lens of the priesthood. And remember, if you're a priest, you just you can't touch the skin diseases and maintain your holiness. Um, in fact, the priests, you have, if you do touch it, you have to go this really intense purification ritual of like water and washing and waiting before you get to do it, before you get to move on and go back into the temple. But man, look what happens. Mark 1.40. You know the story. Now read it again. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. That's ritual purity language from Leviticus. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I am willing. Be cleansed. The same thing happens in Mark 5 with the woman who is bleeding and the girl who is dead. Why does Mark give you death, bleeding, leprosy? Come on. (laughs) You know, it's like blood and death. Priests have strict rules about that stuff. But Jesus is unaffected by them. In fact, he affects them. You all know the stories. So the overt, and man, this one's great. The overt, over-the-top reference is Mark chapter 2, um, where Jesus just like, <laughs> like just displays that royal priest identity. So remember, the paralytic man is lowered through, this, through the roof. Remember this story? And you know what he says to the guy before he heals him? Famously, do you know what he says to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. It's kind of this like weird moment. And the scribes immediately note, you can't just do that. Only God forgives. You know that story? So we often read this story too fast. We interpret it too quickly as a statement about Jesus' divinity, which it is. It is, it is about that. Praise God. But in doing so, you neglect the immediate context and the, other, and the other statement of equal importance, which is that this is God only forgives in the context of ritual sacrifice at the temple in the hands of the priesthood. <laughs> in the hands of a holy one. So Jesus is not just God, he's also the priest who isn't tainted with uncleanness, but rather he is the one who actually has contagious holiness. Um, A a scholar named Crispin Fletcher Lewis coined that term. So he, he can't be defiled and he cannot depart the presence of God. Rather, the kingdom flows out from him. And that is the ideal for humanity. Read Genesis 1 again. Order out of chaos, flourishing of life. This is Jesus' MO. Mark's agenda is to picture Jesus as the true human royal priest, but also God and temple and sacrifice. (laughs) And then just read the Gospels, and they just like crank the volume up on all of that. So I want to pause and just reflect for a second. Because we've been going at like a million miles an hour, and I'm going to pass out. God created a good world. He did. But here's the point. It wasn't a completed world. He didn't want to complete it alone. This, he wanted to co-rule it with people called the royal priesthood. They were to participate in work, which was good. But a severed relationship with God means a poisoned creation and a horrible work environment and even a corrupted heart and mind which can't actually even distinguish between good and evil work anymore. Remember Pharaoh? He thought it was good. But in Jesus, we see the proper kind of human at work in the world, the true garden human who is partnered with God. He's on a mission to extend God's rule into the world, and we call that the kingdom of God. And he is bent on overseeing this project 
to bring into collision the holy and the ordinary. And for people, for the whole world, my goodness, to wake up to its glorious identity as the sacred space of the creator God. This was all made by him for his glory. And for our flourishing. So look at the language of the Apostle Paul. It's just, you guys, it's too good. When he's talking about the resurrected Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, look at this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Where, <laughs> he's just compared to fruit. Where else have I heard of a story of human beings likened to fruit, that they're to bear seed and multiply, be fruitful and multiply? <laughs> the New Testament authors want us to see Jesus as the true, the true earthy human not at the compromise of his divinity, the true priest king, the new Adam, Paul calls him, the new Adam (laughs) that God intended for all of humanity to be so that in him we might live forever in the new creation. And here's the thing. The magic is in the word new, new creation. God God isn't just restarting the royal priest project of Eden through Jesus. That's not enough. No, Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. That is the ultimate, final, utterly perfected, and gloriously eternal new heavens and new earth. This is the reality that the New Testament authors are so desperately trying to beat us over the head with in their books. Like, wake up to it. It's incredible. We've been liberated from the bondage to sin and death in order that we might now, right here, in the language of the Exodus, work for God on the mountain. <laughs> and Peter loves the language of the Exodus, by the way. First Peter, First Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, he says, to an audience that's not just Jewish. How does he do that? How can you use that language to a mixed audience? Because this isn't just a reference to, the, to Israel and the Exodus. Israel and Exodus themselves are a reference to God's vision for all of humanity in the garden. (laughs) Israel as a royal priesthood in a holy nation was a, this is a, I don't like this phrase, but for lack of a better phrase, a plan B to what was originally plan A. That humans would trust God (laughs) and live in his presence and be the kings and queens of the priesthood they were always meant to be. So the point, of all is, the point of all of this is that if we view our lives, here we go, past, pastoral implications. If we view our lives as something we do just to bide our time until Jesus comes back and the whole thing burns up, if that's how we conceive of the world, we've narrowed our view of the kingdom. We have robbed the gospel of the wonder it brings into the now And we starve our imaginations of any color the Holy Spirit would might bring to an otherwise black and white image. The Bible wants us to see that we avad and shamar as citizens of the new creation, but here and now, (laughs) somehow, and even the word somehow, man, even the word somehow proves my point that we have small imaginations for this, especially in the American church. But somehow, if Jesus really is the first fruit and we are in him, and we have his Holy Spirit, then our everyday work matters, you guys. So much so that even the small details, which we might think are insignificant, bear mysterious, eternal weight. 
And here's the thing. Oh, man, here's the thing. I'm going to get preaching here. Our work doesn't matter merely because on your lunch break, you might pray for healing for someone or give a prophetic word or something. That's not the only reason your work matters. That stuff is great. It's amazing. And I pray you keep doing it with confidence and boldness. But even all of that must be understood as part of the larger mission. It's one of many road signs which point to the king and his kingdom and the promise of new creation. When I say work matters, I'm, I'm, um, when I say work matters, I mean that I believe, and you can take me out to coffee if you disagree, I deeply believe God is interested in partnering with all of us in all of our work because somehow all the good and all the true and all the beautiful that we do in Christ here in this age will be somehow mysteriously transformed and resurrected into the new age. And I don't, I don't mean that like we're bringing our mansions and our sports cars into heaven or something. I, don't hear me wrong. <laughs> What I mean, though, is that the Bible actually has substantial room at the table for a theology that deeply values our work here, understanding that it somehow participates in everlasting glory. And um, this is what John the Revelator says, by the way, in Revelations 21. Man, when I really started reading this for the first time, I like, was weeping on my living room floor because it's so hopeful. Look at, this, look, at this, look at this verse, Revelation 21, 23. 23 through 25. While he's talking about the new city of God, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, this is what he says. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring their glory and honor of the nations into it. What? is he talking about? What is the glory of the kings being brought in? I thought like to God be the glory alone or something. And yes, indeed. But this, the whole point is this isn't all just going to burn, you guys. That's a poor reading of scripture. The perishable, the fading, the bad, the evil, all of that work in the world, it will be dissolved and done away with. Yes and amen. But a good biblical theology understands that humanity's work, where it's true, where it's good, where it's beautiful, belongs to God and God alone. And it all contributes to the tapestry of his glory that is given to him. Every day, we are living in the promise that the glory of the nations will be brought in. So it is my deep conviction that within this community, we witness all the time, all the time, Flashes of this glory, windows into this new creation all the time. They're not perfect. They're not the full picture by any means. Don't misunderstand me. But by God's grace, our people will testify. Our people do testify to the beauty of the new, capital N, every day if we can learn to see it. And not just see it, but tease it out and cultivate it and celebrate it and then invite others into it. Have you seen, have you seen the photos taken by Wes McLaughlin? Have you truly relaxed in the ease that comes because of the way Noel has organized everything you see? 
Have you ever stopped to really appreciate, and I mean really appreciate, the way Marshall has taken a very complicated world and a very complicated Bible and worked hard, tirelessly, to help you digest easy pieces of it very, in very meaningful ways every week? Have you been moved by Jacob's drumming? And man, but even more than just the work, the churchy work, have you had the privilege to put your bare feet on an exquisite hardwood floor he and Jesse and Richard have put down? Have you paused to appreciate the shocking depth of the soul which Miranda Wakeman is able to penetrate through a collage of magazine scraps? Unbelievable. Have you seen the way Johnny is able to somehow funnel the sometimes haphazard energy of children into a unifying environment? of order and growth and love. Oh, I'm not going to make it through this list, but I'm going to try. Have you heard of, and and man, have you seen the same sort of thing happen when Josh MacArthur walks into a room with middle schoolers? It's unreal. Order out of chaos. Beauty and light in the midst of dark places. Have you stopped to appreciate and really take notice of the care and attention Carl gives to one plant cutting just to see it flourish? Have you ever sat down at a table prepared by Lane Fish or been served dinner by Aaron Benton? Have you just listened to Tori Pruitt hum, let alone sing? Have you marveled at the God-given joy and humor and warmth of the Carlsons and their ability to somehow diffuse any room of any tension and unite everyone within and make everyone feel like they have like a best friend and an ally in like 10 seconds? Have you seen what Joel Wakeman can do with a few pieces of lumber? Or have you appreciated the way he helps to carve and refine your thoughts and your habits with the delicate touch of a carpenter? Have you sipped a glass of Wally's beer? Or have you trembled in amazement at the respect and dignity Liz Wakeman shows to children? Have you seen how Leslie Pruitt makes eye contact, look at her, (laughs) and really listens to adjust her life to the truth of God? Have you felt the instant acceptance of Doug and Mary DeYoung as if you're like their kid? Have you witnessed the subtle, non-flashy, but undying, unrelenting commitment of people like Justin Kreller or the Pritchards or Dennis who are just always there? They're just always there, always there to help. If God delights in the work of humanity, then may we too, maybe we should just stand a little bit more in awe of the work of people like Dan and Lauren. These guys that are able to like push buttons on a machine that might as well be from outer space, it's so confusing. And for them, it's like without question worship as they're just like pushing buttons. Have you received or have you been spoken to, have you spoken to someone who's received ministry from the Burnettes or the Tatarskis who like by their words, part waters so that life can flourish on dry land? Have you seen my wife, Michaela, mother our children or paint? Paint with watercolor or solve a puzzle. Have you paid close attention to the details of Kara's chalkboards 
And the way that her, they tell of her theology and her giftings and her passion. Have you appreciated the way Matt Petrell tends to creation and his family? And the way Jody cheers not only him on and not only all of her kids on, but all of our kids on as well. Have you seen Bethany Benton's cultivation of shalom in the lives of children who long for just a sip of peace and harmony? Or people like Heather Hollabaugh or Avery Herman who could go all day delighting in the wonderful world or worlds of fiction which honestly testify to their imagination more in line with God's than we realize. If you see the way Brendan Wixell's undivided heart just spills out into all of his work, are you aware of Lewis Pruitt's budding heart for his neighbor and Liz Hicks's unparalleled passion that just like flows through her veins like fire into everything she puts her hands to? Gosh, and this isn't, I'm like so over time, this isn't an exhaustive list. I debated on whether or not to even read it because I'm going to leave people out and I don't want, exclusion is not the goal here. I Forgive me, but I just wanted to briefly draw our attention to this community right here and acknowledge that the new creation leaks in and around and among us all the time. And here's the thing. It's not just during ministry time. It's not just on Sunday mornings. And it's not just the Jesus-y things we do during the week. Because it's all God's... (laughs) God is at work in every ordinary little work of our hands. Every square inch of creation, you guys, all things are being touched by the gospel in order to be brought under Christ. We just lack the imagination to think about it like that. So let me be clear. When the gospel touches bad things and evil things and corruption and injustice, then darkness must flee. It does not stand there and hang out with those things. This is not a sermon about how all work is good just because I'm getting teary. Followers of Jesus must stand against those things. But where beauty and truth and goodness exist, even in the tiniest form, the smallest of seeds, then the follower of Jesus is to speak life over that and blessing and fruition until it grows and then it can be grafted into the largest tree in the garden. And that means that revival, okay, I've got to hurry, but I'm not going to skip this. That means that revival, which we pray for a lot, will mean many things. Of course, you guys, of course it's going to mean speaking in tongues or receiving visions or being healed. That's great. I love that stuff. Yes and amen. But you know what? Gosh, dang it. It's also going to mean that stay-at-home moms and dads who wonder if there really is any point in folding the next pile of laundry, yes, even them will understand that their work is sacred. Revival, in my humble opinion, means that they will know deep down that wherever order and goodness are brought about for the flourishing of life, in Jesus' name, God is at work and reviving. Revival will mean baptisms and prophetic giftings and signs and wonders. Yes, yes, and amen. And for our purposes today, it also means God's gonna, people are going to believe at last that God is at work and that Monday morning is sacred and that the Holy Spirit is present in the steady, loving hands of the man who does leather repair. The deeply formed, revived life means signs and wonders and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the dishes and bedtime routines and in sending thank you cards. If we believe God made humans to Avad and Shamar, then it means all of our work, 
All of our lives are lined with cracks through which unfading light of God's glory shines through. This includes meetings with clients and every table we wait on and all of our Zoom calls and every classroom we show up to and all things we say, oh, Father in heaven, may your kingdom come here. So here's my thesis to you in a word right here. By God's good design, our work where it images God and bringing order out of chaos makes beautiful that which is ugly, cultivates life where there is death, matters. And by doing it, and by doing it well, we partner with God in his mission to bring all things under the name of Jesus. And all of creation somehow has the potential to mysteriously and supernaturally last into the new creation because of the work of the royal priesthood. Don't ask me the details on what that looks like. I don't know. The Bible's mysterious. <laughs> so can I just invite you all to stand? I'm so sorry for going over. I'm going to just what we're going to do is I'm going to, I wrote a prayer. I wrote a prayer that um, I'm going to put, we're going to put up on the screen bit by bit. And I just invite you to not only pray it for yourself, but to recognize that everyone around you goes to work in some capacity, even if they're retired. They do, they busy their hands each week. And I want you to offer this prayer up for them as well as yourself. Ready? And then I'm going to just pray and close it um, for the sake of the kids. Thanks, parents, for being patient. Here we go. Holy Spirit, I believe you are invested in all of my life. Monday is as sacred to you as Sunday at 10 a.m. Jesus, I lay my work at your feet. Where there is disorder and chaos, would you show me how to bring about order? I believe that even in that act, whether small or great, I image you and you are glorified. Take delight in my humble work. Where my work is ugly and neglected and lacks integrity, would you show me how to steward and make beautiful? This next one might be a little tough to pray, but it might be one of the most important prayers you pray in this season, so... Join me. Father, where my work is evil, or where it has partnered with evil, where it brings corruption and participates in injustice, death and destruction, would you just open my eyes? Would you bring light to darkness, conviction to apathy, boldness to fear, and imagination to hopelessness? Last bit right here. Jesus, you are the royal priest king, the true image of God, the first fruits of the new creation, the ruler of the cosmos, and I'm your offspring. May I also take up the call to be a bearer of God's image, and may the work of my hands, great or small, bear good fruit and may that fruit, like the work of a holy royal priesthood, provide for others when they taste it beautiful glimpses of the new creation where my roots are planted. Amen.